What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. As always, I'm perusing the internet, and uh, I'm also an avid podcast listener, and I, I'm a history nerd. And I've been entranced with a lot of this podcast called Revolutions, especially the Latin American revolutions, but I binged all of that. And I found a new podcast called the history of the Cuban revolutions podcast. And I binged that and I reached out to the creator, Nick Ramos, and he's on the show. What's up, Nick? Happy to have you, brother. Hey, thank you very much, brother. Uh, Very happy to be here and happy to have a free flowing conversation about anything Cuba related. So, I mean, really quick, what, what, what made you decide to start a project like this? Because I'm assuming it kind of took on a life of its own. And uh, yeah, just just give me sort of an insight on what what made you decide to to do something like this. By the time I decided that I wanted to talk about Cuban history, the podcast boom had already um, it was it was full on swing. Right. I think uh, by 2018, everyone was sort of either listening to a podcast or had found their thing. And uh, I've always uh, I've done many public speaking things um, and I studied history in college, too. Um, I was in college when when it started and uh, I wondered um, what is a niche that I can fill that hasn't been filled yet that I can do that someone else can't. Um, and instantly what came was Cuban history. Uh, specifically because I'm Cuban. I was born in Cuba. I lived there for nine years. I came in 2006 in the wake of the crash, the beginning of the crash. Um, and uh, I, I figured that there's a lot of discord in uh, Cuban discourse, right? Both on the island and in Miami. I think that... Uh, Cubans have a sort of approach to history which is deeply unhealthy. And this comes from the revolution. Revolutions seek to establish a year zero. Everything that came before is completely erased. Everything that came after is, you know, a beautiful golden age that should not be criticized. And then on on the side of, of the Miami people, the Miami exiles, the emigre community, everything that came before is just the most beautiful thing. It's gorgeous Cuba. It's better than New York. And everything that came after after is filthy Castro. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this is sort of an ahistorical perspective to, to both of these communities in both of these periods. And myself growing up as a Cuban guy, I barely knew anything about the country by, uh, before 1959. And, you know, there, there is a lot more to the island than the Castros. Uh, as enigmatic as they may be. So I figured, hey, you know, I should find out about my own history, which I was going to do anyway. I need to read up on my own history. And while I'm reading up on it, you know, why not tell people about it? And the podcast ballooned and ballooned, and we're nearing uh, 100,000 listeners, which I never thought would happen for a project I started for myself and my Facebook friends. Dude, that is absolutely completely organic. I mean, you're such a good storyteller. I, I've just been captivated. And I, for off air, we we spoke on the phone a little bit. Uh, we were talking about like what really sucked me into this world of, excuse me, the Colombian Revolution was Simon Bolivar, and I I just was obsessed with honestly like 
the perseverance when he crossed the Andes and then the ruthlessness of it all and the Codillos. I just, I loved it. And when I started listening to your podcast, all the same tropes and themes started emerging. I was just like, finally, something else that I can binge. And I had no idea that there was this whole world, right? Of, of I just, you know, as I don't think about uh, Cuban Cuba and their history as much as I should. And I'm, I've just absolutely been fascinated. So you've done a really good job of drawing me in. I mean, I'm I'm a hundred percent hooked, man. It's it's an incredible piece of work that you're doing. I love it. Listen, I I, I appreciate it, and I think that uh, Cuban history both has a lot of the trends. I think overall Latin American history has certain trends that overlap. Like one of the big ones, I think, is um, that that at least in the period I'm at right now, so I'm right before the revolution. You know, one of the things that pops out is like no re-election, right? Which is a big thing in in early in South America and Latin American movements of the late 19th and 20th century. Because whenever you had a president in there, if he tried to get reelected past his constitutional term, or even if he showed getting that he wanted to get reelected, like that's that's a no no. Because the longer people are in power, the the more likely they are to accumulate power and want to stay there, and the harder they are to get rid of. And it was the same thing in the United States, by the way. It was mm-hmm. in the United States, you weren't supposed to run for president. You were supposed to be drafted by other people, but you were not supposed to reveal your ambition to get to that certain place. Um, so there are a lot of trends. There are caudillos, there are things like that that pop up in Cuban history. But then there are a lot of uh, different things that manifest in Cuban history, particularly because it's the last bastion of Spanish power. Right. So Simón mm-hmm. Bolívar happens way before Cuba and particularly the more interesting stuff happens because of its proximity to the United States. And of course, what sets it apart is the, the famous yeah. Marxist revolution that Castro leads, although it's not a, a socialist revolution or a Marxist revolution that he leads at that time. It's it's just a revolution. It's just populist, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and it's because I now that now I'm really gonna have to dig deep back into my brain here. But I remember reading something about him and Che. One of the things that when you say populist, they would actually help people with their farm. They would go out and actively kind of be willing to win the hearts and minds of the population. And that's not, that's something that the current government that they were going to war against wouldn't do. Am I correct in that? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? You cut out for a second. Damn rip. He, Am I back? Go back, Rick. Uh, damn it. Um, anyways, <laughs> what I was saying, a little technical difficulty, folks. Um, what I was saying was that I remember reading something about Castro and Guevara would go and they would help the farmers and they would help the people uh, come up. And that's how they were able to win the hearts and minds. I don't know if I'm correct in that. So I haven't gotten there in your podcast yet, but um, that's, and, and I'm very fascinated because I don't know a lot about Fidel Castro besides he, instead of staying in downtown New York, he ended up staying in Harlem and he made the United States yeah. look 
completely foolish in a time of segregation. I think Nikita Khrushchev actually went with him to Harlem and they're like, hey, communism, we're all here. The, everyone's equal. And that's the, that's the superiority of our system versus capitalism. And I, now this is, yeah, that's been years ago, man. I could be completely wrong. So you're, you're, uh, you're speaking as to um, two issues, which I think are both interesting. Number one is the peasant support for Castro's revolution. Number two is the revolution uh, coming afterwards and its approach and treatment of uh, Afro-Cubans and African-Americans and honestly, just the African world at large. Because um, I, I don't know if, if you're aware, but since the very beginning, Castro... Okay, so I'll take it one at a time. The first one was Castro's support from peasants. And the fact is that, like many places, Cuba had Havana and it had a few other towns and it had everything else, right? Yep. When you look at statistics for... Cuba before the revolution, there's always like statistics in Havana and statistics in the countryside, right? Like illiteracy is higher there. People don't have running water. They don't have electricity. They're down bad. And so this guy comes around and, and he, he comes to the easternmost province known as the Orient. And that's where he starts his revolution from. And the Orient has always been poorer. It's always been blacker. It's always been revolutionary. All three major Cuban revolutions start from the Orient. And so, of course, when he comes around and, yeah, you know, he starts, like, literacy programs. to, And there are also recruitment programs, right? Because he's recruiting out of these areas, too. But, of course, he starts literacy programs in that area. This is while he's fighting the revolution because the revolution takes many years. It's like Castro waiting around in the jungle for, like, a <laughs> a long time before conditions get okay for him to move forward and actually start an offensive. And he's like relying on yeah. people in the city. He's relying on arms. He's relying on other movements to join with him. Basically all sorts of other leaders just either, you know, and disgrace themselves or end up dead or don't have a lot of support. And he's like the last guy standing. So yeah, right from the beginning, because of the land redistribution angle, because of the angle where he came from, came from the Orient, because the fact that those were the dispossessed people, the revolution, and, and again, just another one of those South American trends, land reform is a hugely important thing, especially in an economy that require, that's, is structured around a crop, which sugar is the crop is structured around. So, yeah, so the, the revolution right from the beginning has a very heavy, you know, peasant agrarian component. As to the other part you got into, I think that's an interesting part too, right? Which you said it was about Castro comes to speak in the United States, he stays in Harlem, right? And yep. eventually you, you see people, you know, all sorts uh, of Black Panthers, like Hugh and Newton goes to Cuba. Um, uh, Eldridge Cleaver goes to Cuba before that. I think he goes to Algeria. You know, these are like uh, big uh, Black Panther figures. So Cuba has an interesting history with, African-Americans in the sense that race relations play are different in Cuba than in, in the United States, of course. For example, Spain or Spanish doesn't have the N-word, but that doesn't mean that there isn't racism. So right from so from the beginning, something that the Cuban Revolution did that wasn't unique to it, it was actually the same as other governments, 
is race-based politics have always been banned in Cuba. So you can't have like your independent black folks caucus or whatever. That that's that's not allowed. There's one party. Your party cannot claim to exist. And this happened before, and then there was a big massacre in 1912 because there was a brief black uprising. And then there was enshrined in a very progressive constitution, the 1940 constitution, so this is 20 years before Castro takes over, that you cannot have race-based political parties. The Cuban revolution is, fits into this mold. So in, in Cuba, you couldn't, a lot of like specific black political clubs got shut down after the revolution came. However, after a bit of time, Castro did begin to speak about black liberation broadly. Um, in, in the country, too, you know, there's still representation problems in the country, same as in our Congress, right? You know, you have a certain amount of people in, in the National Communist Congress or whatever, but it's, it's less of their share uh, than their population as to what Afro-Cubans make up. Um, but when he, he began to talk more and more about um, the worldwide black struggle due to the fact that he found affinity with those movements. So right from the beginning, the two youngest revolutions of the 1960s were Castro in Cuba and then Algeria. Right? So right away, we have an anti-French revolution. Algeria gains independence. Um, and they were in communication right away. And then Che Guevara tries to spread revolution to Africa. Goes to the, uh, yep. to the Congo, for example. And, and he fails and he comes back. And Castro doesn't give up on it. And in 1970s, you have Castro sending Cuban troops to fight in, in Angola, um, which is being invaded by, by South, uh, South Africa. So you have like Cuban tanks and Cuban planes being airlifted for no reason. You have Cuban guys fighting in Africa. Um, so at one point, Castro figures out that the the revolutionary movement of the late sixties and seventies, which you saw reflected in the United States, was uh, being largely led due to the the new uprising of decolonization and African uh, countries getting their independence. And he decided both out of ideological and pragmatic reasons to help them. And it was a back and forth exchange. That said, he didn't exactly tolerate talk of black separatism, right? Like Castro had a very icy relationship with a lot of the early Black Panthers because Ooh. their talk, he would allow them into the island, sure, but they would always leave after a few months. Okay. Right. Yeah, because it, that's not in accord with his plan of communism. He wants everyone to be equal, right? That's that's and that's not that's going to detract from his power base. So I wouldn't allow that as well if I was him, right? That, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Another thing I do. Do you believe that? Because one of the things that you said in the podcast it blew my mind a little bit, right? And I, I don't know why it did, but the the reason that yes, there definitely Cuban had its racial issues. But you, you mentioned a point. The United States is founded on common law, and Cuban's legal system is founded on Roman law, I believe. And I don't know. Civil law, yeah. Yeah, which I thought that that was interesting. So in, in, in that law, in the, in the early stages of Cuba as a colony, slaves had a lot more rights than they did in the States, right? They could own land, they could buy their freedom. That wasn't necessarily an option in America. And I, I'm just saying from a trajectory from way back then to where we are today, it would it made the transition 
um, a little bit easier in the States. I thought that that was a very interesting hypothesis. Yeah, I, I think so. I'm trying to access like the, the, the like the 5D underwater backgammon thinking right now about slavery. Like this is a this is a weird <laughs> connection. I was not expecting the question. But um uh yeah, from what I can remember, a lot of the early slave laws of the United States, so we're talking like Virginia Plantation and stuff like that, they're either spin-offs or very similar to the Code Noir. Mm -hmm. which was put put forth by by Louis for uh, the Haitian plantation. Yes. Um, and then they got harsher and harsher after a certain point. There are a lot of theories as to why they got harsher and harsher. Uh, leftists believe that uh, that black folks were were demonized um, because to cre to to create a to help them out in a class distinction sort of thing to get lower class whites not to not to go against uh, richer whites. So create that distinction where they feel superior, therefore they view things along race. Um, th there's there's a lot of theories as to why that happened. I think the the important thing is that um, these these islands had just very very black populations, and and, and yeah. a sort of a point where you where you reach a population like Cuba, where you have a significant black component, you um, you have to make do. So. I don't know if civil law, I, I wouldn't be comfortable with saying that civil law regimes are essentially better at race relations, yeah. but I, I do think that the, the average slave definitely probably had more, more rights in Cuba than they would in, in Virginia, which took on a whole entire theology of its own about why slavery needed to exist and whatnot. Now, whether that comes directly from the law, I think that's interesting. It's a very interesting point you brought up. But yeah, blacks definitely had, I think, more rights. You know, they could buy their own freedom. They didn't have the like. There were so many weird archaic laws in Virginia. Like you had to have like a like a note if you were a slave and you were carrying yeah. business for your master to go outside. Um, you know, you had like your. I guess Americans had this too, where like you know, like slaves would have parties and stuff, but it, it wasn't be allowed to do in Cuba, which is like certain times just have huge festivals, festivals, and be allowed to parade. Um, yeah, well, I mean, they were able to keep their culture. Yeah. I mean, that's something that you pointed out that I thought was you had different people from different parts of, of Africa and they were able to co-mingle and hang out. You know, and I don't remember exactly. I've, I've been binging this, so there's a lot of shit, shit between my ears. But they were able to, from what I remember, right, they were able to coalesce uh, on certain days or maybe they had a day off. I'm not sure. And they were able to yeah, keep yeah. and maintain. They, could coalesce on certain days, yeah. they were able to keep and maintain some of their culture, right? So, I mean, uh, speaking as a, a, a black person here, like a lot of that was lost in America, for sure. A lot of that I, was lost. This might also have to do with religion, huh? right? This might also have to do with religion because um, American evangelists, like Catholicism had a while to adapt to just like dealing with <laughs> with like Catholicism came to to in, in a fight with a huge empire to America, right? Um, they they had to subdue uh, Mexico, and so Catholicism had like a long history of being able to adapt and sort of co-opt local customs and just and just bring them into the fold. Like today in Cuba, you have like black folks who are deeply Catholic, but like still got a little Santeria to them, right? Yeah. Um, and where was American evangelical religion was, I don't know, it was, it was proselytizing in a very mean way. And I'm sort of shooting from the hip here. I don't know if, 
you know, somebody's going to come out tomorrow and be like, actually, you're wrong for like these 15,000 reasons. But like shooting from the hippie or that, it might have something to do with the fact that Catholicism was sort of better at just allowing these homegrown, I say homegrown, just, you know, religions to to coexist or exist as a part of the larger fold, right? You got Santa Muerte in Mexico, well, yeah, you-, you got a bunch of, uh, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly what I, that's exactly what I was going to say. You can see evidence of that in Mexico and in Central America as well. Um, so I, I definitely. And by the way, we're, we're shooting from the hips. This is Rick's mind. There's going to be a lot of bullshit on this show, so <laughs> don't feel any pressure, dude. We're just talking. We're just talking. You don't have to be correct. I'm sure someone will hit me up and let me know if we're not. And we have Demarco fact checking, and we're going to have a bunch of load notes or less load show notes. So no worries there, man. But um. All right. I I definitely one of the one of the things I also want to ask you, uh, and I'm not there yet, so and I'm down for spoilers. But do you dive into Fidel's military? Because I, I mean, I mean, I'm I'm flying blind here. I've got to imagine that he had to have been a brilliant tactician, or at least have brilliant tacticians in his, you know taking a power and in, in, in the conflict side of thing, the war, right? The war part of the revolution. This dude's got to be yeah. pretty good, I would assume. I mean, yeah. Fidel as a tactician has only really been tried once, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of a, yeah. So, so, you know, we're not talking like a Napoleon who had to fight a shit ton of battles um, and only lose a few. We're talking about a guy who... I don't know, man. It's 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 difficult to say. So Fidel received training in guerrilla warfare. He did. He received training when he was like a college kid, and he tried to go on an expedition. He received trainer training later while he was in Mexico. He got trained to. Um, Cuban Revolution is an anomaly. It really is. Shouldn't have happened. There's there's no reason why like eighty dudes in a boat can come over and take over a country. Um. I don't know if it's brilliant tactics, but they did establish a a a, a theory that couldn't work again. It was uh, it was the FOCO theory, F O C O. Essentially, is you know you you got your middle class professionals. It's similar to Maoism, I think. You got your middle class professionals, your your University of Havana law school kids. You go to the countryside. You um, try to coordinate with other sectors. To do things like a general strike or to um, get support from them. And then you you take a big countryside army and you sweep in. Like Fidel, he used to just sort of caved in on himself. Like nobody was on his corner <laughs> was the beautiful yeah. thing. Was the thing that after a while, like he could not extinguish Fidel's revolution. It had established itself up, you know, in the mountains. It was very good at that. At the same time, like Batista was facing coups from within, like universe, like uh, students rushed in and almost killed him. Although he wasn't there at one point and took over the presidential palace, took the radio and were like, this is a free country um, <laughs> regime. And like, so, so I think that Fidel's victory was in large caused by not to undermine the man's genius, but military genius. Um, he ran a guerrilla campaign very effectively. Right? Like I, I can say that I, I don't know. Uh, it's 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 hard because like if you're a guerrilla, okay, we call him a guerrilla leader, but you're like a leader that's like vastly outgunned or whatever. What can you really do? You can do like a few hit and run attacks here, take some weapons there. So like, did he manage to survive and use the media well and be particularly canny? Yes. So I guess he is sort of a genius for how many other movements have completely failed 
as a military leader. I don't I don't think that if you you built a list of like greatest generals of all time, be you know, anywhere near that. That that you you can you don't even have the data for it, right? Like we got guys like fighting, we got like guys fighting a hundred battles, and Kutuzov, I think in in Russia, like undefeated for like ninety battles or something. And so I don't think he he goes. There's not enough data. He definitely ran a flawless guerrilla campaign that Che Guevara tried to replicate in other countries and was unable to, and died doing. It. What? Yeah. What is up with Che Guevara, man? Like, because I've heard, and again, I'm coming at this whole aspect of the Cuban revolution from a, a place of extreme ignorance. But from what I've heard theories that this guy really wasn't anybody. And is this something you get into on the podcast? Um, like what is his significant role with Fidel? Like, cause I just, that is one of the re cause there's just so many, I have a buddy that's like, he didn't do anything. Like he's a, he's a poser. And like, well, I mean, I haven't really looked into it. So I'm hoping that, you could shed some light on that for me. No, no, Che did a bunch of shit. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, Che was deeply important. Che was one of the people that met Mexico. Uh, che had in, uh, experience with with uh, being part of like pseudo rebellion before. He's right. He met Fidel in Mexico, and they were instantly had some kinship. Um, and. Uh, he, he was one of the people leading, so it was eventually like a three-pronged attack into the middle provinces of Cuba, and he was one of the people leading um, a big one. Um, he, he actually is very famous in my hometown because he, <laughs> right around the time when he got to my hometown, was when Batista was like, I ca I'm calling it quits, I'm leaving. Um, so, so Che Guevara was, I would say, he was the theorist of the revolution, right? Like, if the revolution had a theory which it itself failed to articulate for a while, Che Guevara gave a very loud voice to a part of the revolution. The revolution was not super ideological movement to even start with, right? It was sort of a protest movement based around certain ideas of social democracy and equality that had floated around in Cuba since like 1933, Guevara was, however, a Marxist, and, and he definitely had, he was a deeply well-read guy, and he definitely had opinions about how to run a country. He was eventually put in charge of the Cuban economy at first, and, oh. and then how to run a revolution. He was their, their the theorist. He was the voice of the revolution. Um, his theory proved out to be at least in his execution, proved to be incorrect. He was never able to replicate it. But like you see in the 60s, after they put him up around uh, the economy for a while, um, that Che Guevara is not particularly fitting into the Cuban model. Cuba's getting closer to the Soviet Union. Che Guevara doesn't like the Soviets. Um, he's Ooh. He has sort of... Uh, he doesn't like their bureaucracy. He doesn't like the idea of like large nations imposing on the small. He has kind of like Trotskyist leanings and whatnot, where he believes in exporting the revolution. Whereas by the middle of the 60s, it's about cooperation, right? It's about getting better along with the United States, not taking uh, your revolution everywhere. 
And so Cuba essentially just starts shipping him out to different areas in Africa and then to South America to try to export revolution to countries that have, you know, friendly-ish communist parties and maybe the possibility for revolutions. But yeah, um, I think the, the, the thing I could say about Che Guevara is that Cuban-Americans hate him. Like, uh, Cuban-Americans, Che Guevara to them is, is the devil, practically. Um, and they, they, they will always... Why is that? Um, well, uh, I... He's an unrepentant voice, early voice for Marxism. And I think there's a sort of memory there. But also, like, everybody has a story where it's like, Che Guevara killed my cousin or, like, whatever. And I'm like, oh. e either he was probably false. Like, either he was, like, he had multiple clones of himself or, like, he, he, he could teleport around the island. But, like, there's no way that every Cuban's cousin was killed by Che Guevara, <laughs> which, which is... Uh, is a thing that, that you hear a lot. Like, man, I don't know how many dinner time conversations I have. Like, no, Chad did this and he executed this guy. Like, come on, guy, come on. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. But like, uh, yeah, so Cuban Cuban Americans have like a deep hatred of this man, particularly because Che Guevara died as he lived, right? And even if you disagree with him, and I'm I'm not a Marxist, um, but even if you disagree with him, you can't say that he didn't live up to his ideals almost entirely like yeah i think you know like one of the last things he wrote is i like people will call me an adventurer but like i was pretty consistent about everything um yeah he's an insanely consistent man like an argentine who did a motorcycle journey around south america got radicalized hooked up with like another weird radical who cuba didn't even like mm -hmm. that much invaded a country took it over ran its economy for a little bit and then went like fuck it time to invade other countries and spread my ideology or to support their homegrown yeah. movements. So he was deeply Which, consistent man with a backbone. And that's, that's, I mean, to be, I'm ashamed to say this, but that's been my kind of understanding of him from a very childish level. I, I mean, I watched the motorcycle diaries. I'm like, dude, this is a fucking great movie. And then I kind of go down a rabbit hole about that. Was he, now this is a dumb question. Again, my ignorance, he was, was he even Cuban? Or was he just like some crazy? No, he was an Argentine. That's Argentine. why his name is yeah. Che. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because like Che is how like Argentines are talking to each other. It's like if I called you like guy or bro, mm -hmm. it's like oh yeah, get pasa Che. But that's that's why his name is Che. It was just a nickname that Cuban guys put on him for being Argentine. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that it means bro. His name is bro. <laughs> <laughs> like that's that's it. Right. Okay. He's a fascinating character. Where did he meet his end? Because I, I remember uh, reading something about his end, and there was some lady. He called her in. He stared her in the eyes, or something like that. And then, pop, pop. In, in Bolivia. Bolivia. Okay. In Bolivia. Yeah. So after, after um, failing to get revolutions off on the ground in in uh, Africa and Latin America, he ultimately went to to Bolivia, um, and uh, he had a disagreement with the uh, the Communist Party of Bolivia. Communist Party of Bolivia wanted, I believe, to run for elections, um, whereas, you know, Che was much more in favor of, like, actively fighting. Um, and so he met briefly with the Bolivian leaders, and they were like, okay, we want to be in charge of this. And Che had a very bad experience from Africa, where he didn't think that the leaders were acting in... <laughs> Um, the, the, uh, the early African exchanges with, with Cuba were, weren't great. Um, cause Cuba thought it was there to like lead a sophisticated revolution based on class-based interests. 
and they thought like the the African leaders were much more concerned with like parochial local interests and stuff like that. So he would not let the Bolivians run run the insurrection. He was there to to lead it himself. Um, and so the Bolivian communists just went fuck it. We're not we're not dealing with you. Went off to do their own thing. And so Che was in the jungle with like a handful of dudes who supported him and a few Cubans. And uh, they snitched on him, right? Like, it's it's different when you're trying to launch like a like a revolution in a country you understand. Like you had a lot of Cubans. Fidel Castro understood Cuba. Time was right. Where it's different where you're starting to start a, like a revolution in, in like Bolivia that has like a significant indigenous population. Cuba doesn't have that. Right? Yeah. So it's nope. it's a exporting the theory is difficult. And, and yeah, so yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he was bitched on, he was caught, and he was killed. That's I mean, the dude had the dude had a giant set of balls though to do that. Yeah, one of I the mean, biggest balls. Yeah, I agree. Just absolutely. Some people want to see the world burn, and to just <laughs> fuck man, no. And then so when. It, to, to be fair to him, I, I would say he wanted to see the world burn to see it change. Yes, yes, yeah. That's that's that was. Uh, I'm trying to be as fair to him as I can in the name of. Uh, I already said I wasn't a Marxist, so I'm trying to to get both sides on board. Mm-hmm, yeah. So one of the questions I want to ask you is, what do modern day Cubans think of Fidel? And as well, and and another and another part to that is is when did the mass exodus? occur and i'm assuming again i'm not to the this place in the podcast that it was probably around when he took power and that this there, was there, a- there several ones okay um okay so so the the first question i think that's tough right like fidel at the beginning of his life is he's one of like the last few great men and when i mean great men i mean People who seem to be moving history just just on their own will is one of the last few great men of the 20th century. And he sort of captures the mind of the international left in the 1960s. Um, And uh, that goes away. And by the end of his life, there's sort of been a pink wave which recedes a bit, but people call it a pink wave, which is leftist governments winning uh, election in South America. So, you know, like Lula in Brazil and Hugo Chavez in, in Mexico. I mean, in Venezuela, my bad. Um, and uh, by that point, he's sort of a relic, right? He's, he's someone who shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like, how many presidents did he outlive? Eisenhower, Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon, Carter, Reagan, H.W., Clinton, Bush, Obama. Just like nine presidents this guy outlived. He's a guy who was still in power at the end of that that shouldn't from an era that doesn't exist anymore, carrying memories and feelings and rhetoric all the way back from like the radical 1960s, 50s. He's, he's a political dinosaur, but... If there was a dinosaur in a zoo, wouldn't you want to watch him? Right? Oh, yeah. So he's he's a very interesting figure who has a very checkered opinion. In the world opinion, you, you saw people like Jeremy Corbyn and Justin Trudeau saying, like, you know, rip great leader or whatnot. Um, that caused a backlash among the people that hate him the most. Who are 
Cuban-Americans. Cuban-Americans in Miami, for many reasons, starting in 1959, they, they hate the guy. Uh, he split their families. He changed their country in ways. Uh, he took their property a lot of the time. And we're going to get into this question, which you asked about the waves of immigration. But um, yeah, he, he, he changed the country in a way they hate. And so there, you won't find any good opinion of the guy in Miami. I think if if they sent his remains to Miami, someone would steal them and throw them like into a part of the Everglades with like fucking alligator food and no one would be able to find it. They would just hide it deep in the ground. <laughs> it would go missing in like 24 hours. Um, in Cuba, the opinion is mixed. Because by the very nature of a communist society with a one state uh, program with like significant, you know, like if, if you bad talk the government, you might not get a promotion or your, your child won't win this award at school or this thing or that thing. Where there's a lot of people that like quietly say to themselves, it used to be more quiet, quietly say to themselves like, damn, I hate this guy. And then now that the internet is around, they publicly say to the, to like under like the president, the new president's like Twitter account, like I fucking hate this government. But there is a significant contingent, I think, living in Cuba that still very much reveres him. And you could see that the day he died, um, there was a significant burst of emotion. And not that he was like a Stalin-like leader. Stalin is like a, a lot worse. But you know, I, I uh, someone once told me that um, the grandmother who's who's alive uh, alive today is a Russian person, and she was you know like seven years old, and she cried when she heard that Stalin died. Um. I think there was a lot of reaction to that out of genuine love in Cuba for, for the guy. Like, I think there is love and I think there's, there's support particularly within the black community, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, like who's not going to love like the guy, like, of course there's going to be love for the guy who has managed to signify your country for like 50, 60 years. Astro made Cuba synonymous to his name like, of course they're going to love him. Or of course there's going to be love for him. So opinion on him is mixed. And I expect uh, he will be evaluated and re-evaluated as waves and waves and waves of scholarship uh, come out. And 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 Justin Trudeau, Castro's son, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the other thing, right? Like, that's that's the big old fucking theory. Uh, listen, I, like, they do look alike, okay? <laughs> and, like, um, it would be cool. That would be that would be cool if, like, the last legacy that fucking uh, Castro left on this earth was this, like, neoliberal wimpy guy in Canada. <laughs> like, <laughs> dressing up in all sorts of, like, blackface. <laughs> I mean, fuck it. It would be, it would be fucking <laughs> rad if that was, that was like his last legacy was just shit stained Justin Trudeau that he leaves her like every three months. He's like, I'm a feminist. And like 50% of cast of like Canada's electorate goes claps like seals. That would be a cool legacy. Um, I don't think like, I think if you look into the timeline, I don't think it makes sense. <laughs> so I'm sorry to burst the bubble that even though some initial appearance no, he's he's definitely Pierre Trudeau and whatever her name is. Uh, his kids, I forgot her name. But like, she improved the bloodline because Pierre Trudeau's like an ugly guy. But um, if you look at him younger, he wasn't so ugly. You can see the resemblance, and you can see how you know she improves the the genetics, and you end up with Justin Trudeau. Would be cool though. It would, so for the listeners here, uh, that that last part was courtesy of. 
DeMarco. He's been dying to know. We've got an expert in Cuban. So he's like, we got to, we got to, we got to ask. I've never heard of this conspiracy theory. So I'm shocked. There's not a conspiracy theory I don't know about. But dude, dude even, the, Cub- even the Cubans want it to be true. Like, even the, this is one like the Cuban Americans won't want to be true. Like, I don't, I don't think that like, Anyone over 40 or 30 in, in Miami knows who the fuck Justin Trudeau is. <laughs> they don't give a shit about Canadian politics. But, like, you got, like, people from from FIU, uh, Florida International University, and, like, UM and UF, like, definitely thirsting for Trudeau. And they want this to be true. They want to be part of, like, the thirst history. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. definitely, yeah, yeah. So, now... I think this is a good segue into, like, modern-day Cuba, man. Like, what are... Uh, as far as I know, I'm able to fly to Cuba. I'm able to uh, be a tourist there. I, I, I believe it was what Obama that kind of opened it up. We got uh, we can get cigars now from what what I'm being told. And I just kind of am curious, like, uh, in your opinion, how are Cuban American relationships? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, dude, anybody that like Cubans love foreigners, right? Like, there's there's something that doesn't exist in Cuba, which I think is is the the concept of like identity politics. Um, like, if you if you mm-hmm. like, I mean, if you wear like a Castro outfit for Halloween, like you're gonna piss some people off, but like some people are gonna love you. Um, it's the same thing among like older older or like in my opinion, like actual Mexicans. So, like, if you wear like a part like a Mexican hat, they're not gonna hate you. Cubans fucking love foreigners. Like, they love. The idea that like someone out there is thinking about their culture and, and their island, they love it. So they love like re- like think about this. Um, I was talking about this the other day, but like the biggest Cuban cultural ambassador um, is fucking Al Pacino doing a bad Cuban accent and snorting a mountain <laughs> of cocaine. Like think about that today, trying to get a movie made about like any Hispanic type person where like it's it's like Robert De Niro doing an accent. Um, so like Cubans don't care. Like Al Pacino was like a minor controversy for Cuba in like the 1980s or like a decent controversy. But like today he's like, yeah, welcome. We like open arms. Thank you for talking. Thank you for considering us. Very Mm -hmm. happy to be part of your rich cultural tapestry with like your Italian (laughs) actor doing an accent. Um, if you were to visit Cuba today and you can, and you can do this under the guise of uh, in support of the Cuban people, which is one of the categories approved by the state department of the United States, um, which should just basically agree not to stay at government hotels and you can go, right? So Cuba has Airbnb, significant Airbnb thriving market. You can go, um, they're called particular houses, casas particulares or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can go there and, uh, yeah, like people will love you. Like you can go anywhere, like you'll fucking dance. You can drink rum with the locals. They'll treat you well. They try to speak English to you if they can. Sure, they might try to get a few extra dollars from you, but you know what struggling country isn't doing that? Now it's COVID, so everything shut down. Cuba had a very strong response to COVID, as you can expect from a centralized state. Um, and mm-hmm. the economy is just god awful right now. There's no tourism. People, there's there are shortages. There's inflation. There's significant economic reform going on right now. They just basically killed off like one currency. Um, Cuba had like a multiple currency system for many years. Um, oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. It, it had a, like a, this is bootstrap economy. But um, okay, yeah. So I, I would say like if if you if you want, and I guess this is sort of like I, I don't need to talk about Cuba. Like, and this is sort of true of like any Caribbean country. Like Caribbean people are friendly. 
want Hell you yeah. there. I want you hanging out with us. Like, it's cool. So yeah, like I would say, if you get an opportunity to go to Cuba, do it. Don't stay at government places. Stay at like Airbnbs. Dude, just have as much fun as you can. Like, shit is relatively ch- cheap, and and people want to see somebody from the outside world. You're like an alien to them. Like, I remember Canadian. I'm lactose intolerant, so Canadians used to bring me lactate. Like, uh, yeah, they used to bring me like my dad was knew like a couple of Canadians because he was a doctor, and they used to bring me shit so I could you know like one month of the year just ball out on ice cream, and all I would eat. <laughs> That month when the Canadians came by with the lactate supply, all I would eat was ice cream. So, so yeah, no, like foreigners are deeply interesting. Cubans are not allowed to travel outside just on their own accord. Really? Um, of course not. No. Um, in, in the idea behind communist systems, and I think the Soviet Union did this too, is that, listen, we paid for your education. We subsidized so many things, Right. So, like, we're not going to let you leave to another country. We just spent so much money on you. Okay. So that's that's the philosophical basis. But, like, yeah, no, Cubans are not allowed to freely travel. <laughs> Absolutely not. You got to have a reason for leaving the country. Either, you know, you got you have, like, people abroad or you got Spanish citizenship or you're going on, a, on, like, a mission of some sort. So my family, a significant portion of my family has Spanish citizenship. Um... So yeah, no, Cubans can't freely travel. So when an, an outsider comes in, it's like, holy shit, this dude's fucking, you know, cyberpunk 20, uh, 20XX or like whatever. He's like living in the 21st century. Oh, dude, yeah. So how did you get out? How did your you and your family get out? Uh, we won the lottery. <laughs> so I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm lucky already because there is a Cuban lottery. Um, every talk- every no. year you get to apply for it and like you might randomly get given a visa and my mom applied under my dad's name without him knowing it's like i think she'd gotten turned down and her entire family gotten turned down you know like one day i think it's two or three years before we actually got to the united states it was like 2003 get a letter in the mail being like like the mailman was like congratulations <laughs> um mm-hmm. and uh and yeah like at that point it was just a matter of like a significant amount of capital to be able to pay for like the different forms you have to pay for because like cubans don't make a lot of money a month you know i think that the average is is 20 and like my dad is a doctor which was higher earning in cuba and like still he was making 800 something pesos so you divide that by 24 what's 800 say 800 divided by 24 i'm awful at math i have like oh give me a second brother 800 divided by 24 yeah one second that's like It's like thirty-three. So my dad was thirty-three dollars. Like, my dad was making thirty-three dollars a month or something like that. Wait, thirty-three dollars and thirty-three cents a month. Um, whatever he was making around that a month. What? That's, that's for yeah. That's for a doctor. Yeah. And so so he had he had his own uh, illegal business on the side, where he built uh, a machine to make butter. So every night at like twelve in the night, my dad, who was the VP a hospital who had led epidemiology for an entire province or at least for a county i remember had uh was you know fucking naked with with a a motor and uh like a a bottle cut out making (coughs) butter and then he would get his friends and he would sell it the next day and they would be couriers and they would sell butter um so he was the tony soprano of butter for slanging butters huh 
Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that was that was that uh, was pretty cool. <laughs> um, and I think one time, one time, like we got snitched on after after the because you're not allowed to have this. You weren't allowed at that time, so we got snitched on right as we were about to leave. But like, it's like fake snitched because we had friends and I think the police, and they were like, "Yeah, no, we're gonna search your house for like this and this." <laughs> so I had to be outside uh, for a little bit playing chess uh, across the uh, in the, in the neighborhood. But like, uh, yeah, no, like, um, shit was fucked up for a while. It's liberalizing. Um, yeah, what can I say? Like, there's 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 good in the theory and there's like a lot of bad in cuba and i don't want to anger any particular side because both sides listen to my podcast so i'm i'm trying to toe the yeah. line best i can here oh no i i hear you but i mean we know your pops paid the cops off with the butter for sure so that's how you got it <laughs> so so you, Dude, is that that butter money man pablo escobar yeah, you, slings bars these are bars of right. butter that's right, dude. So yeah. you have, so you win the lottery, right? And the lottery, yeah, you, the lottery. you pay for everything. You have, to, you have to like pay for certain forms and whatever. And sometimes the way you do that is like you, you contact your relatives in like the United States if you have them, and they're like, "Hey, can you finance me this? I'll pay you back when you get there." And so, um, then go ahead. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Continue. No, no, then, then you have a meeting with the you. Then you have like an interview with the ambassador. So yeah. like we all had to go in, like my mom, my dad, and I. And like the ambassador runs through and he can decline you, right? He can be like, no, you're not coming to the United States. Sorry. Like for some reason, they missed out that my dad had fucking a military past. Like my dad was like not a super high rank in the military, but like a captain or something. <laughs> he was an officer. <laughs> um, and for some reason, they never asked about that shit. Um, that's because he was a doctor. So like, butter money. Yeah. And that's because he was a doctor. That so he, had, just, he just bribes all the way up. The, the more I talk about right. this, the shadier I sound. But like we had no money and not like significant. You had like and we didn't even have like relatives that we that we were close to in Miami. It was just like one like sort of distant relative was like, yeah, we'll finance if you pay us back. And then the rest was just like, yeah, you have luck. Um, so yeah, and, and, and we came alone. Right. Because my dad is a doctor and Cuba holds back doctors. For a few years because mm -hmm. doctors are what they trade for anything they're a huge mm -hmm. commodity cuban doctors are like you know hot shit in the third world they ship them out um so my mom and i had to come uh, ahead of time for a few years until my dad could get out and then so you get so and uh, so are you a citizen then oh yeah i've been a citizen change uh when, when did i start college uh 2014 Fuck yeah! Well, we're happy to have you, man. As uh, always. Think, I'm, uh, again, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the beautiful American uh, tapestry, and your podcast. Oh, dude. Yeah. Well, thank you. That means a lot because uh, it's you know, <sighs> what an amazing story, man. What an amazing story. So your dad's here. Whole fam bam's here. Correct. Probably not the grandparents though. Yeah. All, uh, everybody like the own. Yeah. All four of my grandparents are still in Cuba. Um. It's only my mom, my dad, and me, and you know, and like a, a decent amount of like you know cousins and like cousin, second cousins, and like you know family that would otherwise be considered distant, but in Hispanic households are close, mm -hmm. um, made closer by living in exile together. Yeah, and you were able to. Are you able, you're able to go back to Cuba then? Yeah, I have a Cuban passport and everything. Dude, nice. I probably shouldn't flash it. Yeah. Yeah, I, have a, I probably shouldn't fly. Yeah. I have I have a Cuban passport and everything. You just have to renew it. Um Yeah, no, a significant amount of it's not in in Cuba's interest to not let the emigres back in. 
um because uh like we subsidize a lot of the economy you have to see you like basically they, they, there's such a large emigrate community in miami around the world and all of them send money back home one way or another whether it's like mm-hmm. food or like phone credits or or uh, like cold hard cash or or just by traveling and staying in hotels so like it matters cuba's emigrate community like holds up a significant amount of cuba on their shoulders in in your opinion how long do you think it will be before Cuban really opens up to the rest of the world because this has just piqued my cur- your podcast for one has piqued my curiosity, but there's just so much rich culture and the food is fucking divine. And I'm sure I'm getting shit Cuban food in, in Portland. You know, I, I got to go to the source. I, wanna I, don't, eat- Portland is sick. I don't know. I'm a, I'm a fan of Portland. Oh, <laughs> I've, well, seen, I've seen a couple of episodes of Portlandia, okay, <laughs> and a, and have been once. You've been well, yeah. For everyone listening, stay out. Um, it's the state mostly <laughs> desert. Uh, they're the crime scene. It's terrible. You can't just stay out. But yeah, you, dude. If you ever, if you're ever in town, let me know. For sure, I'll show you. One hundred percent. Are you kidding me? Hell yeah, yeah man. No, I'll be. I'll try, to, I'll try to bring a bottle of Havana Club. Oh, dude, yeah. Do you, I don't? Are you a fan of beer? Uh, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I drink anything. Okay, man. Well, I've got the hookup. Um, there's a one of my really good friends uh, owns a canning company, and so I've got the in at all the brewery, the breweries. So he cans beer for a living. The dude's a genius. He yeah. just figured it out. That sounds awesome. Yeah. The second that this COVID thing lightens up a little bit and I'm not so scared about it, not that I'm that scared of it to begin with, I'll definitely take a flight uh, and uh, and hang out. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. And same, same, go- dude, I'm down to go to Miami as well, man. My, my, my parents live in Tennessee. <laughs> it's not even that far. So, yeah. Where do your parents live? Pardon? Where are your parents live? Uh, Tennessee. They live in, uh, yeah. okay. They, they, they ducked out of Oregon because it's terrible. So, <laughs> um no man but like i uh yeah again sir we got off on a little bit of a tangent but like when when this opens up when do you think that they'll be able to open up do you think that that is something that we're gonna see in the next 20 years that is that is such a hard question to answer because of the the singularity such a hard question to answer because just like i don't know what, what other country can exist 90 miles away from the United States and be communist. <laughs> right? Like it defies, it has its own unique, weird, and frankly, impossible to replicate political trajectory that this regime managed to hang on as long as it did without being like bloodthirsty. Castro does not kill that many people compared to any other communist regime in the world. Um, so right now, I think that what, what the Biden administration said is that they favor an aperture. They want to open things up. Um, but the problem is that the embargo, that thing that keeps the Cuban economy relatively closed off and um, it's a bunch of annoying regulations, um, that's Congress approved, which is very weird, right? It's not an executive action. So to get rid of that, you need to have Congress overrule it. And... And that expends political capital and throws away, basically throws away, I would say, a state in an election. 
If you're a Democrat, which are the only people that would support this, and you somehow use your political capital to push through an opening with Cuba, what did you buy yourself? Nothing. What did you cost? Probably Florida. Florida's not voting for anybody that's doing that. So as long as the, the blockade or the embargo, whatever it's called, um, blockade, uh, Cubans call it el bloqueo, the blockade. As long as that exists, it's very hard to achieve a full normalization of relationships. That said, next four years, Biden's going to be there. At some point, it opens up a little more. Um, and um, I do think that Cuba's changing. There's a protest movement. There's been incredible protest movements that have broken out that have been sort of unprecedented. Um, the economy's reforming right now, uh, very much so. Just recently, they got, like, there was a... Um, and for the first time, well, not for the first time, but significant. So there was like a huge rap group called Gente uh, de Sona that have, uh, uh, they've been in, they, they've had government approval and patronage before, but they just like randomly dropped a music video that's like explicitly pro-government. And like at 10 days, it had like 2.4 million views on YouTube or something that was like saying that like, yeah, no, this needs to go. This fucking sucks. Like the government needs to change. And the government was deeply hurt by that. Um, they even released like their own anti-rap video, <laughs> which is uh, which is you know it's yeah. that's like the Ronald Reagan PSAs of like the 1980s to combat drugs. You know, mm. like a communist government trying to fucking fight a rap group. Um, but uh, and there was also significant artist movement because the the Cuban government threw a few like censored a few Cuban artists a few months ago and like shit is bad on the island now not like Cuba hasn't survived worse things before they have the regime has survived a lot worse but there is a feeling of change in the air um the new generation of Cubans have been exposed to the internet they're on Twitter they're on Facebook they're on WhatsApp they're on Instagram so they've seen what the rest of the world lives like and they've been exposed to what the rest of the world thinks like and they're pushing back against this generation that should be around 50s or so now that you know the elder castro is dead and the other castro is on his way out right like you have all the great figures of the revolution are already dead or are, are about to die off and the next figures are just sort of these people that grew up in like the 70s and the 60s and the 80s just being told like, you know, you're not a revolutionary yet, like wait your time. So they're sort of like bureaucrats and party apparatchik. And the new generation is rowdy. Like, they want freedom. They want to be able to travel. They want to be able to say what they say. They want to talk shit online. Um, and I'm sure they want to vote because the Cuban constitution constricts things for one party. Um, so I, they, so to answer your question, can I give a number? It's impossible. Do I think there's going to be change in the next 10 years? Yes, I think Cuba 10 years from now will probably look significantly different. I hope so for the better. I say 60% for the better, but there's a chance it could just turn completely ugly very quick. And just, you know, we could have like a bad starvation event or something. That said, the Cuban government isn't dumb and they figure out their way around things. Or they could do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, that's very interesting, man. I, this, this whole thing is just, you've done a very good job of opening my eyes. There's still so much to learn. Like I am so ignorant about 
Cuba, Cuban culture, all of it. And I'm obsessed with it now. It, it's a, it's a very interesting topic and it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like to live in a place where you don't necessarily have freedom of thought. You don't even have the right to fucking vote. Um, and you know, people bitch about things here, but really in the, throughout this world, there are a lot of shitty situations that these people didn't choose this. It's just where they were born. Right. And it's just, it's really mind boggling to me that I was so ignorant of this plight, right. That's still going on. Cubans can vote by the way. There's oh. just only one party to choose from. Oh, fuck that dude. I want more of this. There's only two here and it's bullshit. I hate both of them, you know? <laughs> Like, Good point. Bro. Yeah, I mean, technically, there's the Libertarian Party. There's the yeah, uh, like a Green Party, Green Party, Nader. There now, there's um, there's yeah, like the uh, DSA. The DSA yeah. is trying to run. Yeah. So, but still, none of those guys have any political capital. It's not going to happen. My yeah. dream of dreams of seeing a Libertarian president will be unrealized in my life, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I've, I've come to terms. But uh, yeah, man, it's. That's shitty, man. But God, I hope it opens up. I'm I'm fucking gonna go there. Like that is definitely like it it, it that's on the list because I, I again, as I've mentioned before, I'm obsessed with South American South America, and that's that was on my radar. Venezuela was at the very tip top, and then it seemed a little bit too sketchy, and I because I wanted to go see the Janos, man. I've just heard so much about the Janos. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, I just want to the rolling countryside. Yeah, the grasslands. That's where all the the um, the Codillos were, and they were. It just there's all the history, man. All the four. I just I want to fucking go. And uh, there's a lot of history in in Cuba. It's just decaying. Um, you know, you'd love Cuba. It's it's very unlike. Like Havana was very much is still, but was a proper city. Mm -hmm. And so now it's interesting to see, like, well, you know, what if we just left uh, New York City to decay for 60 years? Um, and and it's definitely an, an odd experience. Walking around Havana feels like walking around, like, decaying parts of New York City sometimes. That's what my dad liked to say when he went to New York anyway. Yeah, I, 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 de I definitely want to see it. But I also I think it's fascinating. They've got um, the, a weird version of the internet in cuba and they have like a lot of weird like they've got the old cars man from the 50s bro i want to drive one yeah dad, yeah the, the, the fucking and then we also got soviet cars we got like the lotta <laughs> things like that like a bunch of yeah like a bunch of soviet brands that like you would only know if you you know drove in eastern europe or in russia like a significant amount of soviet cars uh, um yeah but i mean yeah like it's and and by the way, all those cars have like way better engines than <laughs> they, they they got like new engines and stuff. Um, there's also like I, I think it's pretty famous, but there's like a I think Anthony Bourdain had it on one of his episodes or whatever. But there's like a like a drag race culture too in Cuba. Um, ooh, internet is cool though. The internet, uh, the internet situation is like Cubans love the internet because it's like it represents like every opportunity that they've never had. It was it was kept under locks until pretty recently. Cubans fucking love to use the internet. They love to be on it. They love memes. They love posting shit. They love talking. They love FaceTiming. Like, it's 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 a country that, if allowed to have technology, and I was one of the few people in in my in my town that had like a like a computer. So I was like early mm -hmm. on this. Though, um, I used to use the internet to like download uh, gifts, like 
dinosaurs. The way we would get internet is like my dad would climb up on like a fucking telephone pole at night and steal a telephone line and plug it in at 12. So, so if there weren't, there weren't going to be no calls coming incoming. So like nobody knew that, um, <laughs> that we were stealing the <laughs> telephone line. It was like late at night, but like, no, I think dude, your dad's a gang. Yeah, dude, my dad can do everything. Like he's, he's, he's a, he's a cool guy. He can do everything. Um, shame he's a Trump voter, but, uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it's it's like a very homebrew, you know, bootstrap um, community. To use it, like, if people in the United States did the shit that Cubans did, and they would call it ghetto, but like that's the only the only thing that like Cubans they, they sort of had to figure things out without like you know like without guides and stuff. So oh yeah, man. So yeah, there's so the, you you would have, you were saying you would have. You would have to steal, you'd have to go on a telephone line, plug that in, mainline the internet, jack it, right? <clears throat> and then yeah, that was that was back before that was back before Cuba allowed it. I want to make it clear now. Cuba allows, doesn't allow like I think it just allowed private, barely allows private internet, something like that. I'm unclear on this, but like Cuba took a while. Fidel right from the beginning realized like the potential of the internet to create dissent. He just mm -hmm. wouldn't let it happen until like a long time. Are they able to get like import? Like they're able to have iPhones and shit like that. Like that. The, I, I'm just wondering with the the embargo. Cuba got three G. Cuba got three G. Um, uh, it can have. There's one phone company. So called Atexa, and they control all the rates and everything. Um, Cubans usually buy themselves. They they're they're not the ones paying for their own phone. It's usually people from the United States paying the service so they can talk to their family members and stuff. And like, so their family members can do things online. Cubans do have phones. They have cell phones. Okay. They run businesses through it. Um, they talk to their family members through it. Cubans have laptops. Um, but like a lot of this stuff like is, is very, um, I was mentioning homebrew. So for example, when I was growing up uh, on the computer, like we get floppy disks and on the floppy disk would be like, Emulated uh, Super NES games, SNES games, and like Atari games, and like old shit like that. And so that's how an NES, and that's how I got to like play Punch Out, like Mario and Sonic and Castlevania, and like mm. video games like that, because it would come like a floppy disk, and you would buy it, or like you would borrow it from somebody, make a copy of it, and put it in your computer. So it's still very, and I, I guess the wrong word is analog, but still like very old school, 1990s, early 2000s internet like that. Like it's not an unusual site in Cuba. For you to like walk into somebody's house and see on their uh, home video console a huge USB plugged in with a bunch of American shows, and there's like an oh. entire business out of like ripping and downloading American shows, putting them on USBs, and giving them to people so they can watch it. Um, so like <sighs> Cubans have a lot of exposure to American media through the TV too, right? Like Friends was be was played in the TV. Well, there were like four channels or three. Friends was played uh, while I was growing up. Doctor House was played. Uh, I think my parents saw like a few a bunch of episodes of The Sopranos and like an old VCR. Uh, Jackie Chan Adventures. <laughs> I had like like an old VCR thing. Uh, fucking Jean Claude Van Damme was huge in Cuba, and so was Arnold. Just a bunch yeah. of eighty shit. I grew up watching He-Man, which was like readily. We were like twenty years behind when it came to cartoons a lot of the time. So I grew up like watching nineteen eighties like Transformers, He-Man, Voltron type shit. Um, so like, um, like the media in Cuba was definitely funny because it was regulated, but like you can't block out American media. Like, what are, are you? Unless you're North Korea, you're not gonna like. 
oh, we can't look at Richard Gere's face. It's going to corrupt us. You know, like Julia Roberts, like you can't keep him out. Um, yeah. So, so uh, we had media and uh, there's still very much like that homegrown component of like you, you get the internet, you download what you can, or you get like big packages of like media stuff, like dancing with the stars or whatever the fuck. And then you, you send it around and you watch it. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting part. Like Cuban, you have dissident newspapers now. Uh, it's harder to harass dissident presses there since they're online. So you have like a lot of dissident journalists and people post like bad mouthing Cuba openly in like the president's Twitter account. And, and at one point they like banned Twitter and then they brought it back. So they still can ban whatever they want. It's just, it's harder to do now that more and more people are on it. Like people are going to notice and they're going to get pissed. Oh, for sure, man. And you, you can kind of see instance of instances of that in Saudi Arabia. There's a huge uh, thing going on with a lot of dissent and people are using Twitter to, uh, bring that about, bring that about, and criticize the 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 king or the royal prince or whatever Saudi Arabia, the dude that just took over. Demarc, I don't pull that up. I don't know his name, but um, <clears throat> uh, I think that's interesting. It, it, you can't really MBS Mohammed bin Mohammed bin bin Salman, right? Yeah, I, yep, that's it. That's correct. Thank you, sir. Um, but once no once once the internet's out of the box, man, like good luck putting that back in. People will always find a right way around it, and there's definitely some Cubans that have the technical know-how to go around the government, I would assume. So yeah, dude. And it's, it's very hard to, like, at least while I was growing up and you, you can never leave the country. It was very hard to imagine what life was like outside of the Island. Now, like any Cuban can fucking log in and like follow any sort of like Instagram. Like thinking about you've never left an Island where like, standard of living isn't super high and and all of a sudden you're following like an instagram influencer all of a sudden you're, you're like looking at like what jake paul is doing right like it, it's it's it breaks the mind or at least it 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 significantly changes it it gives a new new frame of reference whereas otherwise you're just like yep this is life right like there is no life outside of this this is just what life is like um yeah the internet definitely changes things well, man, that is all the time we have today. But I, I have to say, this has been incredible, dude. I really appreciate you coming on the show and educating me on this subject matter that I, I honestly am just getting into. I, I appreciate your podcast and what you're doing. Keep doing it. I can't wait to finish this. Definitely got to get you back on, dude. I'm going to start definitely getting more involved in what's going on to our burden in Cuba. And I'm, I'm going to follow that. Um, where can people find you? Um, you know, give it, give everyone your contact information. Uh, thank you very much for having me. My name is, uh, Nick Ramos. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, Nick Ramos underscore one. And, uh, my podcast is, is called history of the Cuban revolution. You can find it on Spotify or iTunes or on my website, just uh, think about history.podbean.com. And uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's been a pleasure. All right, folks, that's all we got for you. Peace.